Well, we are digging into the book of Esther this summer where we are already seeing how the power and glory and purposes of God are not always put on display in a flashy way. In fact, I think the book of Esther is in the Bible to remind us that God is with us, is working in us and for us, even when we don't see visible evidence of his hand at work or his plan in place. Here's a question I have for you, and it's where we struggle, right? Which is why God gives us everything we need, like books like Esther. Do you know how to be courageous? And do you know how to live for what matters most, even when you don't have any spectacular God-like interruptions? We love to say, oh, that was God. What about when you have a sense that there hasn't been any intervention or interruption? Can you still trust God that there is a God and he is in it and on it and for you without visible, God-like, spectacular interruptions. Esther knew how to do that. Let's find out how she did it. Go to Esther chapter five. Esther chapter five. I'm actually going to back it up and begin reading in four. Catch some of what you guys looked at last week and drag it into five. Esther chapter four, beginning in verse eight. Esther chapter four, verse eight. Mordecai also, that's her, that's her adopted father. And he is the one that has learned of this plan and this decree to annihilate all the Jews. So she decides to send word to Esther, which is a good reminder. When you're in a place like the palace, you usually know little or nothing about real life. She doesn't even know this plan's in place. He has to tell her. So he has sent her word of this. That's where we are now. Mordecai also gave him, this was the eunuch, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak, that's the eunuch, went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, imagine this, you think you have an awkward marriage, but as for me, I've not been called to come to the king these 30 days. She's his queen, but she hasn't seen him for 30 days, you guys. That's how he rolled. He had all kinds of other women, tons in his harem. She has not seen him for 30 days. Verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king Though it is against the law, 
And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, here's what you need to know. That was an expression that he did not mean for you to take advantage of. There's actually a secular record of someone deciding to ask something big. And it ticked him off and he killed him. This is just a euphemism. It does, he, he's not giving you half his kingdom, not even close. You need to have enough sense to understand. He doesn't mean that. Verse five. I'm sorry, I lost my place. Thank you, four. You're so good to me. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I've prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It is granted you and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zareph and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Don't you love people like this? Haven't you been at a dinner party like this? Let me tell you how great I am. This is Haman. Then Haman said, verse 12, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So what can we learn from Esther that might help us today? Oh, here's the first thing, number one. Knowing who you are leads to doing what you should. Oh, it stands out in this book that up until this point, Mordecai, right? Mordecai has been insistent that Esther not reveal who she is. He's told her more than once, do not reveal who you are, that she's a Jew, one of the chosen people of God. But now, 
hope you realize the timing of this. Now, after five years, she's been in the palace five years. After five years of being in the harem of a pagan palace, Mordecai boldly calls Esther to remember who she is, who she really is, a Jew, one of the chosen people of God through whom God intends to bring a savior into this world. Remember who you are. Look at chapter four, verse 13 again. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, it could be a whole other sermon on its own, but I want you to catch this. In those two verses, there is a glorious doctrine wrapped up that you need to get that's all through the Bible. Because when Christians don't understand it, it causes you to react and live very poorly. Here's what you see from these two verses. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. Yes, he does. You see it all the time. Instead of just feeding the 5,000, he calls the disciples to actually break the bread and fish and distribute it. And he feeds. He never skips the metal men. He never skips us, even though we're a big part of the problem. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. But the failure of people never keep his purposes from being fulfilled. You see what Mordecai is saying? Did you catch it? Perhaps God, we tend to say, oh, here's what God's doing. Don't do that. You never know what God's doing. You might say, could it be? That's kind of what Mordecai's saying. Perhaps God has raised you up for such a time as this. But notice what he says. If you don't, he doesn't say, here's how some Christians act. Oh my goodness, if we don't, if she doesn't, if he doesn't, what's God going to do? God's going to do what he's always done. Find somebody else. Folks, don't feel bad for God. We just want to get in on what God is doing. He says, but if you don't, God will raise up deliverance for the Jews from some other place. Why would he say that? Because he knows his Old Testament. He knows God is going to do what God is going to do, but perhaps he has you in this place for such a time, but not poor God. Oh, Esther, you gotta do it or all the Jews will be annihilated. Nope, God will raise up deliverance from another place. So what is Mordecai doing right here? Mordecai's trying to help Esther. This is what we have to do today see past he's trying to help Esther see past the trappings of a palace harem past the politics of a Persian empire even past the status of a crown sitting on her head because she's queen to a pagan king and remember who she really is you realize she's been in a pagan Persian palace setting for five years, it's easy to forget who you really are and to begin to adopt their ways. It's easy to get caught up in your status or position or outward apparel. He's like, he's stripping all that away past all that and saying, remember who you are, Esther, and what God has promised to do. 
And so what about this? Never mind Esther. What about us today? What about this room full of people today? Is is now today, apart from the Jews and the nation of Israel, is it just masses of humanity with blurred, grayed faces and it doesn't matter? It's not what the Bible teaches. Does God have anything special in mind for any of us here today? Glad you asked. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I know I put it in the bulletin, but I want to hear you turning in your Bibles. Because I want you to know how to find things in the Bible. And I want it to be marked up so you can go there again. I don't want you to live by the Grace Fellowship bulletin. I want you to know your Bible. So bring your Bible. And go there with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me show you. Look at me while you're finding it. Let me show you what God says about you. If you're here and you're a Christian, I don't care whatever personality type you are. I don't care what citizenship you have. I don't care what your family background is. I don't care what your economic level is. All of that is secondary. If you're a Christian, you're about to see what God says about you, you, you today. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse nine. But you are a chosen Race. He's not talking to the Jews. If you go to if you go to First Peter chapter one verse one, he says to the elect exiles that are scattered, and he names all these places. There's multiple races that have been saved now. If you're a Christian, he says you're of a special race. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you realize the day you became a Christian, you became a part of a nation within a nation? A holy nation. He doesn't say try to make the physical nation you're in holy. You are a part of a holy nation. A people for his own possession. And then he gives us our marching orders. Whenever you see in order that or that in your Bible, it's a purpose clause. All right, we're a holy nation. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthoods. To what? Do whatever we want. No. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We got people today, right, proclaiming the excellencies of all kinds of things. This is the way. This is better. You got to do this. Oh, why aren't you? As Christians, we're supposed to figure out the mission and message from God's word. That they may proclaim the excellencies of this certain political party. No. That they may proclaim the excellencies of this economic way of thinking. No. That they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look at what happened to us. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. If believers would read their Bible, you would be informed on how you're supposed to think about yourself right now. 
You're a sojourner and an exile. A sojourner and an exile. So abstain from the passions of the flesh the way everybody else is acting and carrying on. And if you're not that clear on what sojourner or exile means, let me help you. Because it's so good for right now. A sojourner is someone who resides in a place only briefly or temporarily. You're camping. You're camping right now. You're not going to be here long. I hate camping for a weekend. Can you imagine? But just think. It helps you when you know, I'm not home. It's not always going to be this bad. Something better is coming. Temporarily. Briefly. I mean, camping was designed to make you like your house better when you go home. That's all, you know. You're not going to be here long. Sojourner. Someone who resides in a place temporarily. Temporarily. You're not home. You're not home. You're not home. Stop trying to make it like, I got to get everything right because I'm going to be here forever. You're not. You're not. You're not. What about exile? An exile is one who lives outside of and away from his native country. Here's what I hear from Christians. I just feel like this isn't my America. We've lost my America. Oh, my America. I get it. I don't feel comfortable here anymore. Perfect. You were never supposed to feel comfortable like this was home, like you've arrived. Like, oh, we just had the blessing that is actually odd. Nowhere else in the world did they ever experience, oh, you and your country and your leaders pretty much align. That was the grace of God and the blessing of God for a time. We get to live like other people in the world have lived forever. So grow up and read your Bible. Read your Bible. Now all these passages should mean more to you. Used to you're like, well, I'm not sure what that means. That'll probably help the people in Russia. If you say, I don't feel like I belong here. I feel so alien. I feel so odd. Every time I go to a... I get it, you guys. In the gym, I don't hear people talking or thinking like I do. It's like, oh... When I go to a a neighborhood cheese and wine open house, meet the new neighbors, I don't find myself saying, I feel so comfortable here. Everything everyone's saying is just what I would think. No, I'm standing there thinking of everything being said. How much of this should I speak up and disagree? How much should I let it go? How long should I smile? (laughs) Everything you're saying is so stupid and I don't agree with any of it. (laughs) Welcome. It's awkward. You're not home. You're not home. But he didn't say pull back and don't be there. He said be there. Be salt and light and you'll do better when you remember. Yeah, I'm in exile. I lived in Spain for two years. That's not a rough, rough place. But it is another country. So I I know what it feels like a little bit. For two years, I just constantly felt like I'm not home. They treated me differently. I knew I didn't understand all their ways. You feel odd, alien, out of place. That's how we feel more now. But God's word, word, was way out ahead of us and knew this is going to happen. Sojourners, exiles. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. 
It's happening. Not when, not if, but when. They're doing it. And he knew they would do it. He told us they would do it. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your rage and retaliation and political power and resources. No. So that they may see your good deeds. Romans 12 says overcome evil with bigger evil. Good. Good. Bless those that persecute you. Pray for those that spitefully use you. What? Yes, in in case you've forgotten, Christianity is radical. If you're not living radically, you're probably not living for Jesus. Radical. It's not like what we would think. Good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's who we are. A holy nation. A royal priesthood. With a purpose to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here's why it matters. If you lose sight of who you are, you will not be doing what you should. Listen, the identity you adopt most, the label you wake up with most, the identity you adopt will determine the causes you take up. Because who you think you are is going to shape what you think you should do here in this world. Who you think you are is going to shape what you think you should do here in this world. So be careful and be biblical about your identity, identity, identity. And that's why we got a world right now that's just screaming, you do you. Because they've adopted an identity that's no bigger than self. I will define myself and I will promote me and defend me and expect you to affirm me because I live for me, 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 me. me. But guess what? Defining and redefining and living for nothing but self doesn't work. In fact, it leads to utter chaos and destruction. That's what we see right now, right? You would think right now with the amount of freedom and and saying, oh, go define yourself. With the freedom to define yourself and promote yourself, it would have ushered in a season of unprecedented happiness in America with people being fulfilled and secure. And it hasn't, has it? Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. You, you don't have to be a Christian for this to be true. Every human being, if you're breathing, I'm talking about you right now. You were never created or designed to define yourself and make much of you. Mic drop. Never. In fact, you ready? You were created in the image of God, male and female, and for the glory of God. Which means you were designed to live for and make much of someone else and something else greater. That's when you actually have a sense of joy and peace and purpose. And you say, well, Brad, what's the problem then? Sin. 
Sin has caused us to curve inward on ourselves and to think the answer is self. Make much of self. Find yourself. Find yourself. Define yourself. Promote yourself. Defend yourself. Express yourself. But it's not leading to happiness. We have epic levels. Epic of anxiety, depression, right? This is not the answer, but it's the lie that the world promotes and that our enemy Satan stirs up. The truth of it is it's exhausting and frustrating and confusing. You realize you were never designed to bear the weight of defining yourself and then defending yourself and promoting yourself. It doesn't work. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it because you were not made to do it. You were never designed for this. And so here's, here's what has to happen. It's only possible for you to live the way you should after something greater breaks through to control you. Something greater has to break through to control you and rescue you, not from other people. We tend to think other people are the problem. Guess who you need to be rescued from from most? You! It's only possible to live the way you should and the way you were designed after something greater breaks through to control you. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5. Go there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians second, chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. He's not talking about your love for Jesus. He's talking about Jesus' love for us. You realize when you truly know just how much he loves you, oh my goodness, it changes you. It gives you courage. It gives you security. It gives you new priorities. It gives you freedom. That's why Paul, watch the prayers of Paul. Paul does not pray all the time. Oh, get these Christians out of this hard spot. Oh, remove these trials. Remove the suffering. Never. He prays stuff like this from Ephesians 3, that you may know the love of Christ and be rooted and grounded in it so that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He knows when that begins to grip you and settle in on you and control you, it changes how you live and it changes how you respond to hard circumstances. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live, he's talking about people who are truly spiritually alive now. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. Him who died and was raised. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you've ever struggled with that and thought, I don't get it. 
Doesn't seem like old passed away. I still slip up and I cuss. I still get angry. I still, he's not talking about you will keep fighting sin. You will have weaknesses. You will have all kinds of problems. What passed away? Your little tiny world of right here, right now. You're being curved in on yourself thinking I have to live for self. The old has passed away. The new has come. You have a new way of seeing the world. You have a bigger view of what's really going on. You have an eternal perspective. Your biggest problem has been solved. You're not focused on the same things the world is focused on. The new has come. That's what he's talking about. When his love controls you. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador, you guys, is an authorized messenger who's been sent to represent her country's message and mission. We got all kinds of people acting like ambassadors, do we not? Come back. Come back. You've been sent. He's not talking just to pastors and missionaries here. This is every believer. When you wake up, I don't care how exciting your job is or not. I don't care how mundane it may look where you are or not. I don't care how ordinary versus extraordinary what's going on in your life is. You've been sent. You are authorized and sent into that neighborhood, into that job place, onto that campus to represent the message and mission of someone else. You think about an ambassador for the United States in South Africa or somewhere else. How long would she or he keep their job if they thought, I'm going to take this authority and just promote my own deal? You're gone. An ambassador has authority and power and is sent to represent the message and mission of another. You're to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, for the kingdom, not for other causes, not for self, not for something else. Even if there's people screaming at you that you should be doing this. More and more, you guys, if you're not reading your Bible, you will not be able to resist not just the ridiculous screams of the world, but the confused screams of other believers who will be trying to call you to something else. You better be reading your Bible and you better be filled with the Spirit to stay on track with the message and the mission for which he's authorized us and sent us or you'll get off track. You'll waste your life. You'll be frustrated. We're ambassadors for Christ. And this need, listen, this need for helping Christians remember who they are and be on the right mission is not a new thing. It's not like two years ago this became a problem. This has always been a problem for believers. You realize in 1563, that's almost 500 years ago, in 1563, the theological faculty of Heidelberg University in Germany created a new catechism. Now, why would you create a catechism? It's nothing more than a series of questions and answers because they realized Christians aren't thinking what they should think. They don't know what they should know. A series of questions and answers that they hoped would ground Christians in what matters most so that they would live for what matters most. Now, what do you think the very first question and answer is about? Out of 129 questions, this catechism's long, 129 questions. First question and answer is related to identity. 
Identity, because if you don't know who you are, you will not live for or be doing what you should. Listen to the question and answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, Brad, how is that a comfort in life and death? How is that an answer to the question? Well, let me help you. When you're not your own, you don't have to defend yourself. Because someone else owns you, someone else defends you. When you are your own, you are on your own and will need to defend yourself, promote yourself, solve your problems. We're not our own, but belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, because I belong to Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. Now listen to this. And makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Notice how these things are connected. I'm not my own. I belong to him, so I live for him. I'm not my own. I belong to him, so I live for him. I am not my own. I belong to him, so I live for him. We've got believers who are not aware as they should be that he bought you with a price. You're not your own. You belong to somebody. And that's not a scary thing. If you're young right here and that, this rubs you the wrong way, I don't even like this kind of talk. I'm not my own because we've got a culture that is drummed into us for three decades now. Oh, you do you. The only way you'll be happy is you fulfill you, you express you, you promote you. That's an exhausting way to live. Oh, you want to belong to him because then someone else defends you. You don't have to defend yourself. Someone else takes care of you. Someone else does the heavy lifting. I belong to him. In fact, I'd say this to you. You actually want to lose you and be found in him. We got people trying to find themselves by defining themselves. You find yourself, right? Human beings are like, I gotta find myself. Let me help you. You find yourself when you lose yourself and are found in him. That's when you land in the sweet spot and you're like, this is what I've been missing. This is what I was made for. This is home. This is security. This is joy. You find yourself when you lose yourself and are found in him. That's what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter three. When he steps away from his amazing resume, his education, his family of origin, his ethnicity, and his national zeal, and says this, but whatever gain I had, and you realize he had a lot of gain. His resume is amazing. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake. Paul was from the right family. Paul had a PhD level education. Paul had been around the right people. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the leading philosopher in the day. 
Paul had all kinds of accolades and stuff he could have clinged to and he could have allowed it to define him. He said, all of that I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now what is it that he has found? What is it that he could gain that would be so much better than all of that? He's gonna tell you. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You realize as long as you keep clinging to these other things, you cannot truly experience being found in him, loving him, being secure in him, having your hope and purpose in him. If you, here's what I'd say to you. If you have Christ and you've been found in him, you have everything. And if you don't have Christ and you've not been found in him, it doesn't matter what else you have in this world. You have nothing. To be found in him. All the worth of knowing him, found in him, knowing him, living for him. You might be in public school, you might be in home school, you might be in a certain college, you might be in a certain level or status in the marketplace, but found in him should be your all-consuming identity if you're a Christian. In Christ, in Christ, not ethnicity, and that's not popular today, not ethnicity, not nationality, not political party, not tax bracket, not educational level, not gender, not Enneagram number, and not any other tribe to which you might ascribe in Christ. Folks, that's what brought Christians together in the early days. Stop acting like this is so different. They had people who were slaves and people who were wealthy in the same church. They had people of differences just like we do. And they loved each other because they came together in Christ. And it caused the world to say, how do you do that? The world is not impressed by our buildings. It's not impressed by all this other stuff. What will get the world's attention, which is why Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your Say it louder. For one another. As we'd splinter up into little tribes and subgroups within, quote, the church of Jesus Christ, we do great disservice and harm and just sling graffiti all over the glory of the gospel. The world is looking to see something that will unify. They think the answer is get specifically with your group enough that now you can all agree and get something done. That's the world's way of thinking. We're supposed to put on some, on display something far more amazing. Black, white, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, speak in tongues, don't speak in tongues, drink, don't drink, do Halloween, don't do Halloween, talk about Santa, don't talk about Santa. And then say, how do you do this? Oh, because all that other stuff pales in comparison to We've all been saved. We're blood bought. We've been redeemed. We have the spirit of the resurrected Christ. Our hope is heaven. We're exiles. You can be a rich exile or a poor one. 
You can be a black one or a white one. It doesn't change. We're exiles, sojourners, ambassadors who have been sent with authority to speak of another's message and another's mission. And when we get on board with that, we'll find unity. We'll find you. Unity is not found by running off everyone who doesn't think like you. It's found by coming back to your identity and the gospel. Identity and the gospel. Identity and the gospel. Because knowing who you are leads to doing what you should. But, oh, there's something else in this passage that could be so helpful to us. Number two, knowing how to wait leads to doing it the way he would. Oh, yes, do we need more people doing what is right? Guess what we desperately need also? More people doing what is right in the right way. It all matters, you guys. Do the right thing in the right way. We got people acting like, it doesn't matter how you do it. If you think you're right, any way we'll get it done. Do the right thing in the right way. It's not enough to just know what you think you should do. We got to do it the way he would want us to do it. And so often, here's, here's the deal. So often the way he would do it, my friends, has a very different tone and a very different pace. Usually much slower. You're like, oh. You know, we, we just think, get it done. Get, oh, look at what's going on. Get it done. Get it done. God has not called us to just get her done. He's called us to please him. He's called us to please him. He's called us to please him. If you don't do the right thing in the right way, it still doesn't please him. You can be aimed in the right direction, but if you have the wrong tone and the wrong pace, it still says there's something wrong going on in your heart. Listen to me. God is never, show me a passage in your scripture. Email me if you want to. I usually say don't. I'm telling you, you have my permission. God is never characterized by frantic and furious. Never. We got a culture right now that is frantic and furious. Frantic and furious. And Christians with their little fish sticker are frantic and furious in a Christian kind of way. Wrong. Frantic and furious. God is never characterized by that. So stay with me. So whenever you are, you can be sure you are not filled with the spirit of God. Oh, you're filled with something, but it's not the spirit of God. Something else is driving you. Something else is moving you. Something else is fueling you to do what you do. And I'll tell you what so often it is. Fear and self-preservation. Fear and self-preservation. Fear and self-preservation, which produces the toxic fruit of anger and rage. We got so much anger and rage right now because we have so much fear and self-preservation. Fear and self-preservation going on. In a recent Instagram post that I just saw last month, Jackie Hill Perry describes what I think has been going on for a couple years now on steroids. She says this, there's a lot to be angry about. Injustice in various forms. The disregard of humanity, of heaven, of love, of the reigning Lord and truth that sets us free. At the point that perpetual rage describes you or us, 
though, is when something needs to be adjusted. I have grown weary of the number of Christians that want to point to Jesus clearing out the temple with a little whip as their model for why they're angry every day. You can read four gospels and see he did that once. And he was God. So he can do that. Stop saying, that's my model. At the point that perpetual rage describes you or us, it's when something needs to be adjusted. We need to guard what we're watching, listening to, and having continual conversations around. Are they stirring us up to love and good works or just rage, just anger, just clenched fists and unrestrained anxiety? The truth is we're all scared. But instead of going to our Lord with our angst, we huff and puff and tear everything down as a way to reform our environment. As if verbal violence is the way to bring heaven to earth. That may be the spirit of the age, but it ain't the spirit of the living God. Mm, Thank you, Jackie. Oh, you guys, huff and puff and tear everything down. Verbal violence will never bring heaven to earth. We're supposed to give a soft answer. We're supposed to turn the other cheek. We're supposed to be with meekness, answering them. A reason for the hope that we have, why we aren't so frantic, why we aren't so furious. Oh, I'm not staying here long, A. B, I have someone who owns me and takes care of me. Something bigger I'm about than right here, right now, so I don't have to go crazy over right here, right now. Whose spirit have you been putting on display most over the past couple of years? And I don't even mean just face-to-face, because guess what? Online matters also. Oh, man, I see a difference with the way people carry on and conduct themselves online versus in person. There should be no difference for a believer. Whose spirit... Have you been putting on display most the spirit of this age or the spirit of the living God? And if you want it to be more the spirit of the living God, there's some things we can learn from Esther. Look at this, letter A. Esther knew what happens when you wait on God. Look at me. If you want the spirit of God, you better learn to wait on God. We got Christians way out ahead of the spirit. He won't chase you down. You realize that he will not chase you down. He'll let you go. Good, go. Wear yourself out. Fall apart. Be anxious. Get on a psychotropic drug because you can't even sleep now. Go, go. And I hope eventually you'll come back to me and say, oh God, what am I doing wrong? Thought you'd never ask. If you want the spirit of God, you better learn to wait on God. Look what she did in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Here's what I want you to understand. Fasting and praying can be the speed bump that slows you down and gives you time to not only know what, but how and when you should do what you do. It's not just what that matters, you guys. Too many people act like as soon as they know what, how and when don't matter. Mm. Mm. It all goes together and will determine whether you're really pleasing God. In fact, I want you to think about something. If you're guilty of only thinking you need to ask God about the what, 
Here's what I want you to consider. It's only when we begin to see that we have to submit and wait for not just what, but how and when that you begin to feel the weight of all you don't know and how much you need God to show you the way. I don't just not lack the what, I lack the how and the when. I like the what, the how, and the when. When you do that, you're like, whoo, God, I need your help. I need your help. I need your help. And it'll slow you. Now, what is it that causes us to just plow ahead as soon as we think we have the what? Pride. Here's the other, God hates pride. It doesn't say unless it's in a Christian that's tearing things up for the glory of God. He hates pride, period. And oh my goodness, how he draws near to the humble. You show great humility when you say, God, I need the what? I need the when. I need the how. I think I need you. I really, really need you. So often we're guilty of like, I know what. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? That's what I thought. Let's do this, God. You ask for the what. You ask for the when. You ask for the how. What about you? What are you facing right now? In your marriage, with your kids, in your job? What are you doing to get clear, to really hear from God on the what, the how, the when? You see, praying and fasting keeps you waiting on God. And you realize waiting on God, whole. There's so many blessings with that. Read through your Bible and catch all the verses on waiting because waiting on God in the Bible is not the way we use the word waiting. Wasted time. When can we get going? The word wait in the Hebrew is a word that means expectant, leaning forward, hopeful, looking outside of ourselves and our own wisdom and resources, dependent on God. He's up to something. He's up to something good. I wanna get in on it. I wait on God. I wait on God. I wait on God. Lamentations chapter three. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Psalm 27. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. And then the granddaddy of all the wait on God verses Isaiah 40. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. You realize in that one verse, there is so many promises. He promises you strength. They'll renew their strength. He promises you perspective. You realize when you rise up on wings like eagles, you see more than you were seeing. Very often, my biggest need is not just some extra strength, a bigger perspective. We're right down in the trenches, in the dirt, in the grit, in the right here, right now. As you wait on the Lord, he gives you a bigger perspective. They will mount up on wings like eagles, and you're reminded. Every time I read my Bible, you guys, I'm not just informed. I'm reoriented. I see bigger again. I see bigger again. And then he says, you'll get perseverance. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. We need strength. We need perspective. We need perseverance. 
The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. You get all three of those when you say it. Wait on the Lord. Strength, perspective, perseverance. But I want you to see how Esther was willing. She didn't just wait on the Lord. She knew how to take action. And she also knew how to go slow and give God more space and time to work. Oh, I love it in chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, she comes into the court, two words that are stunning, and stood. And this is all the more stunning when you consider that historical records outside the Bible tell us this throne room was designed to shock and awe and intimidate while you wait. It had 36 pillars, 65 feet high, positioned strategically all over to push you back to and to force your attention onto the king on his throne. He is great, you are small, and she, say it. How could she stand? She knows, she knows, and the law is, if he didn't call you, he kills you. You're not called, you're killed. She stands. She doesn't crawl. She doesn't cower. She doesn't tremble. She stood. Why? Let me help you. Esther stood in the presence of this earthly king because she has already been in the presence of her eternal king and God. That'll give you courage. Some of you need to get into the throne room of your king and you would not be as afraid of earthly rulers. You haven't been in the right throne room long enough, often enough. She stood, she stood, but then she didn't just plow ahead. You know, we would have just blubbered as soon as we knew he wasn't gonna kill us. So what do you want? Oh, Haman's wicked. There's this whole plot to kill us and I'm a Jew, stop it. She doesn't, she's calm. I just need you to come to a banquet. Then after the banquet, and he's sipping wine, he says, so what? She's like, I just need you to come to a second banquet. Are you kidding me? A, she knows her husband. He's into banquets. Read Esther. We started with a banquet. He threw a bank. He's into banquets. And some of it is culturally, culture. When you go to other countries, missionaries find this out all the time, you don't just begin to ask for what you want. You can't even buy something from someone or get the document you need until you've had coffee for three hours and learned about each other's family. Americans, we're like, here's what I need, here's what I want. They're like, let's have coffee. So it is, some of it is cultural, but it's more than culture. Here's what's going on. Esther understands she can make plans because you realize while she fasted, she had to plan that banquet or she couldn't have said, come to the banquet today. She made plans while she fasted and prayed, but she also knows I want to go slow so that God might do something I can't plan. And he does come back next week. You'll see that while Esther slept, Between banquet one and banquet two, God woke that pagan king and gave him insomnia so that he called for the royal records and said, come put me back to sleep by just reading royal records. And he sees what Mordecai had done that he forgot to reward. And it turns the entire wicked scheme back onto Haman's head. Look at chapter six, verse one. 
on that night, the king could not sleep. You realize some of the best things can happen while you sleep when you trust a sovereign God and give him time to work. Some of the best things can happen while you sleep. And sleep is his gift to remind us that we're not infinite, that we're not unlimited in resources. We must sleep, but he never sleeps. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for making so clear to us who we are so that we could be about what we should be doing. And oh Lord, teach us how to wait on you expectantly, hopefully knowing that you're up to something more than we could ever contrive, design, or pull off on our own. We get to be a part of what you are doing. We are your people a holy nation, a royal priesthood who were once not a people, but now we're the people of God who once did not have mercy, but now we've received mercy. Therefore, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Oh God, get us back onto the mission and message to which you've called us, equipped us, and sent us into this dark, confused world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.